0: If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than four billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at SharesPost.com/equity.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and this week I'm joined by Crunchbase News Editor in Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hi, Alex. Hello. And joining us today is TechCrunch editor Danny Crichton, the driving force behind our subscription service, Extra Crunch. Hi, Danny.
2: It's great to be here, Kate. You know, the the flight was awesome other than the person sitting next to me who kept taking his pants off.
1: You know, there's always something like that. There's there's
2: always something like that. And it wasn't even on a United flight.
1: What what airline was it?
0: Delta. Delta is not better than United. People have these weird airline allegiances. They're all terrible. And they all have people that take off their shoes. And all those people should be forced off the airplane.
1: Some are better than others.
2: You know what's great about uh, being out here in SF is going to TechCrunch's new office, which, quite frankly, looks like it was designed by the same people who do the WeWork offices.
1: Yeah, TechCrunch's new office resembles a WeWork office more than I would like.
2: Uh, Well,
0: speaking of WeWork, should we talk about their IPO? We must. All right. So this week, there was news out that WeWork is accelerating its IPO plans. And if you've been tracking the company for any period of time, uh, you'll recall that they were supposed to go public at some point, but we weren't sure when. Now, according to some reports, we're looking at a September timeframe for the company to actually get public, which means we may see an S1 in August. And I have to admit, guys, I am freaking excited about this. It's sooner than I thought, which means the company may be less mature than we expected. So first impressions from you guys, what do you got?
2: I think the lesson here is that when you're losing tons of money, it's important to raise additional capital earlier rather than later. I agree,
0: Danny, but the company is currently putting together a debt facility in the billions of dollars, so they were going to have access to the money anyways. I'm kind of curious if they're more focused here on market timing and if that's kind of the reason why they're trying to rush this uh, into the public markets.
1: I think it's a combination of market timing and a need for capital because, like you just mentioned, it's a debt round, essentially because they needed to lower expectations for their IPO. So, like, if they were going to go out and attempt to raise, say, like $5 billion, well, just based off what we know about WeWork, including the fact that they're losing so much money, I think they were a little hesitant to believe they could actually accomplish that. So I think this debt facility is is in order for WeWork to actually have a successful IPO which is to say to actually target less of a fundraise with their
2: IPO. I also think that the, you know, when you're going out to the the, the debt markets and you're, you're trying to raise billions of dollars, you're probably talking to a number of different institutions. And so WeWork's data is all over the place now, right? All the financial information, basically everything that would be in an S1 is being transferred around to all the banks and everyone else who might fund that. And so maybe it's also a way to reduce the risk of leaks, right? They get to control their own narrative. They can control the timing and so moving it up connects it a little bit closer to where the data is already going out.
1: Yeah. And let's just remind everyone, this is all coming like less than a week after Adam Newman reportedly cashed out $700 million worth of shares. So interesting timing.
0: I think that was a, a, a total sum from all of his divestors over time. And the share sales were from a few years ago, I think. So I don't think he like just sold $700 million of his of his stake total, but I do think that timing in terms of optics is pretty bad. Like if you just got beat up in the press for having a CEO who's uh, either leveraging or selling off parts of the stake, and then you go, we're going public. It's not really the best possible timing.
1: Yeah, it kind of seems like they don't care so much about the way that they're covered. I mean, WeWork's gotten a lot of shit over the years and Adam Newman is a kind of an, exec, Not well, not just kind of, he's a very eccentric CEO and I don't think he's so concerned with how he's perceived, but he's going to have to worry about that because when you're going public on Wall Street, like those things really matter. So I'm really curious to see how, how Wall Street responds to WeWork, like how, how the IPO per- performs, you know, and then how the stock performs.
2: I think that's really the lesson of that story is is the fact that it even happened in the first place, right? So I don't know all the details of when exactly the share sold. I, I believe, Alex, you're right that it was a sort of an aggregate over several years, including new share sales this year. Um, and a lot of that money is actually being plowed back into WeWork in the in the form of leases. So so Newman has been buying buildings, which he then kind of releases back to WeWork. And there's some logistics on why that's taking place. But I think the lesson here is like, how could that go out on Bloomberg, on TechCrunch, and a bunch of other sites? Of like, this is a terrible story. Where's the PR? Where's the communications? How did they not like message that, considering how timing you know is important here?
1: Yeah, and. Before we move on, I also just want to note, WeWork still has an all-male board and now they're, they're inches from a, a public company and they're still all-male.
0: I think Danny's point about them not particularly caring about optics holds tight here. Like, <laughs> You're
1: right. You're are, right. They gonna,
0: are they, are they going to freak out? So uh, to be clear though, Kate, I don't mean to undercut your point. I think you make a very valid argument. I think you're correct in saying that their board is not diverse enough and they should change it. But I'm saying that, eh, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're going to.
1: They probably don't care. Yeah, probably not. All right. So shall we check in with some other IPOs coming up?
0: Yes, let's do that. Um, I have promised everyone to be very, very brief, and I promise to do my best on pronouncing all of these names. Um just as an update, last week we saw IPOs from Frisia with P-H-R-E-E-S-I-A, Medallia and Do You. Uh, today, as we're recording this, a public uh, company called Livongo went public at $28 a share and did very, very well. And upcoming, we have Dynatrace, which I think works in cybersecurity, a company called 9F from China, which works in Fin Services, and CloudMinds, which is soft bank backed and has something to do with robots. Now, we're not going to cover all these IPOs on the show because we don't want to just drag you through every single S1 that pops up, but we do have our eyes on them and the IPO market is still sizzling. So expect more as offerings you do care about come up. But in the meantime, in the background, that is uh, what's going on on the public side of things. But enough of that. We're going to turn now to the smaller side and talk about companies that have raised. Kate, who's first?
1: All right. Well, I'm really sorry, you guys, because I didn't want to talk about this. But Bird is raising a Series D round led by Sequoia Capital at a $2.5 billion valuation. That's all I'm going to say about the round because you can read about it. And we've already kind of covered this a lot. But I will say, like, I think... Bird has been really untransparent about their fundraising and has made it really difficult to report on what's going on at the company. And I think this round is another example of that. You know, they they the round hasn't closed yet, so again, the word's getting out to the press, and the round's not closed yet, so more more press will cover it as it does. I think this is just a way for them to get as many reports on their fundraising as possible, which is kind of an interesting strategy. But time and time again, we're seeing. Reports with differing numbers on Bird's funding and valuation. So it's a little frustrating. I just want to, you know, say like it when companies do that, it makes it really hard to really n- uncover the truth. Um, and then one more rant I want to do while we're on the subject is a lot of companies lately, or for a long time in tech journalism will tell us things on background, which means that we can report it, but we can't credit them or sorry, we can't um, cite them as a source. This is really annoying and it allows them to shape the narrative, the stories about their companies without having accountability. So I think I'm not saying Bird is doing this. I'm just saying a lot of big companies and really important companies do this on a regular basis. And it's frustrating for any PR folks that are listening. Please stop doing this.
2: You know, uh, Kate's referring to a Columbia Journal uh, Journalism Review article that was talking about the increasing nature of both on background and tech. And then at TechCrunch, I've written a lot about, you know, the declining number of form Ds that are filed. So we actually have less raw data to build on. And on the PR side, a lot of companies won't even give you the information at all. So when you look at like Burr, for instance, it's just, we have to trust the companies actually telling us data because there's no way to actually verify anything that we're actually seeing on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. I miss the days of being able to, and I mean, this was recent. You could still use filings to yeah. figure things out. And in the last year, I think really it's changed so much in that companies are not filing. So as a reporter, you do have to rely on, on background statements from PR people, from founders, from whoever, from whoever it is that you know, you're know you working with at a company.
0: Yeah. I think part of that is because we've been covering Ds more as an industry. I think kind of like the sophistication of the reporters um, that have been covering the venture capital world has gone up as we've all gotten a bit more competitive. And so I think people are now trying to either not file Ds or, fire them on days uh, when they'll be kind of like lost in a holiday or whatever. Um, this is just not good for overall transparency. Kate's totally right. But I think I think us getting better at what we've done may be the reason why this has changed a little bit in the last year.
1: One more thing I'll say about this as I don't, please don't do this. I won't name the company, but I was writing a story this week in which I was, you know, moments away from connecting with the CEO about the company. And then I was told that he had come down with a sudden case of food poisoning. Hmm. Now, of course, this could be true. He could, he could have, but my gut says he didn't, and I think this is a really bad way of avoiding a reporter at the last minute.
2: Yeah, well, talking about complicated fundraises, Robin had also raised a round of capital, one that we've been hearing about for for months. Um, so this week, we I think we have confirmed that they've raised three hundred twenty three million dollars at a seven point six billion-dollar valuation, which which is really extraordinary. I mean, we're almost into the Decacorn kind of category. Alex, what do you think about the current situation there?
0: Well, this has been a round that we've been hearing about for a little bit. So it didn't kind of come out of the blue. Uh, when it did land, I wasn't shocked to see it, uh, given kind of the historical precedent of reporting. But one thing I wanted to bring up is uh, trying to figure out how big companies should be at certain size. So one thing that I did uh, before this round came out was notice that uh, we have a similar data point about Slack. So when Slack raised its series H back in august of 2018 it was worth i think about 7.1 billion dollars which is reasonably close to 7.6 billion and what this lets us do is because slack did go public we have its s1 we can look back and see how big it was in the quarter they raised that money when it was worth a similar amount of money and i grabbed the numbers for us today and if my notes hold up Slack was doing Slack did, sorry, 105.6 million in revenue the quarter it was valued at about the same valuation. Its revenue had grown 81% over year over year and 14% sequentially, and it had 87% gross margins. So that is the size of Slack when it was worth a similar amount of money. Here's the question, Danny and Kate. Do you think that Robinhood has a similar revenue scale today as it raises at a slightly higher valuation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not as familiar with Robinhood's revenue avenues to revenue as, as familiar as I am with Slack. So it's harder to to answer that question. Like, does do, I don't know if either of you guys have covered Robinhood a lot, but does it take a cut of every single? transaction. I mean, it's all free. Okay. Yeah. Chris is shaking his head. It's all free. So how does Robinhood make money?
0: Robinhood makes money in a couple of ways. One way they make money is I think they sell order flow to different markets and exchanges and they get a small cut for each trade they put through. And they also have some uh, paid options for more advanced traders and the like. But I don't think Robinhood's making like a couple of dollars per trade. I think it's a lot less than that. So I think Kate makes a really good point that Robinhood has Broken into the mainstream in a way, but I'm not quite sure that it converts to revenue in the same way. And my entire point was that Slack was worth a similar amount. We do have those numbers, and I'm curious if Robinhood's not being valued in the same way. How is it being valued, and is does that make sense? So this will be shown later on when they do eventually go public. But that's just kind of the comparison for today.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's kind of unfair comparison there, just because like Slack's this big enterprise software platform, and Robinhood is this like consumer financial. App. but but i understand that the data told you to do it so you had to
2: I do listen to data. i think the the lesson here is that you know, like like a lot of fintech companies um you know this year has been the year of the mega financial technology company mm-hmm. right we've seen rounds you know we were talking about money lion which raised 100 million last week um, n26 raised 170 million um, and 300 million earlier uh, this year brex raised another 100 million last year and you go down the list you know stripe Raise and Uplift, Blend, Better, Acorns, all of whom have raised nine figure rounds in the last couple of months. Crazy. And I I think part of the lesson here is that, you know, not not to make it glib, but like a lot of investors look at the financial services world and they go, look, banks are worth a lot of money. Uh, Being a stockbroker who is the broker of record for users is worth a lot of money. And so Robinhood, I think, constantly gets evaluated on how many people are actively engaged on the platform and actively trading. And the assumption is, no, there's not a lot lot of revenue today. But if 5 million day traders are on Robinhood every day, there are infinite ways to monetize that. And it may not be stock trading. It could be they add a bank, they add uh, investment products, they could add loan products. Once you have those customers, everything in the financial services world is about cost of acquiring a customer. And once you already have those customers, it's really, really cheap to sort of find other revenue sources.
1: Yeah, I mean... Robinhood may not be where Slack was at that valuation, but I think just given what we just, what Danny just said, the huge opportunity and the fact that it really has tapped into the mainstream and that everybody, you know, it seems like is talking about or, or has downloaded the Robinhood app means that they have a huge opportunity ahead of them. Hey
0: everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Uh, we're going to pivot though to something far away from the financial world and talk about camping, which is, I think, a first on this show over the years. So, why? Guys, why did Hipcamp raise twenty five million dollars? I guess is my first question.
2: Every every single time I see this company, by the way, I think of HipChat, like the Atlassian chatting app. I also do. Yes, I, I cannot unsee it. Like I keep thinking, I'm either. like, wasn't HipChat? Isn't that a public company? Like what happened here?
1: When I got pitched this fundraise, um, I also thought it was HipChat, and I was like, camping? Like I was so confused for like ten seconds, and then I realized what I was looking at. But uh, Hipcamp. So Hipcamp is an Airbnb for camping. People put their private land on Hipcamp. And then you rent it. It's very simple. It's not. Um, it's not as complex as some of the other businesses we talk about on this podcast. So that's nice. But um, yeah, they raised all that capital at 127 million valuation. Nothing out of the ordinary. They are backed now by Andreessen Horowitz via Andrew Chen. And I am going to predict now that they get acquired by Airbnb. Mm.
0: Airbnb, why?
1: I think, I mean, Airbnb has already expanded into experiences, as they call it, which are like little field trips you can take when you're on vacation. And I don't see why they wouldn't expand into things like camping Um, or, you know, outdoor activities, um, spending the night outdoors. Uh, I just don't see why not. I also think like, you know, well, actually, Airbnb should have already acquired them just because it would have been way cheaper. But I I think it makes sense. And also like, so I interviewed the founder of this company and I. And she said she wanted to take the company public, but I have a really hard time imagining this company going public.
2: I, I think I think there is this trend of glamping. I, I do think it's a big lifestyle. You know, there are three hundred thousand units on this platform, and what's actually interesting <laughs> is if you think about camping, it's not just having a tent. Like I'm, I'm on the site right now, and you can get like a modern yurt with vineyard v- views for two hundred a night. Right so what you're actually talking about here is not like $5 a camp at a, a national park it's actually you know thousands of dollars and they're taking the transaction fee yeah. and there's like no other marketplace for it so I don't know No it's it, not
1: a bad idea at all.
2: It, it, it's a brilliant idea. What I actually think is interesting is that Andrew Chen did this and he also did I think we talked about Substack either last week or the yeah, week before did. so these are sort of two I think Substack was like 15.3 million uh, yeah. series A round but here's like multiple kind of consumer oriented investments in different markets for him and as a new GP, entries and you're starting to see Kind of what he's focused on and in, in printing his, Completely. his his thesis. And on. I
1: think I think if he invested, I there, this is probably a great company. I, I have trust in his in his portfolio. But I think what you just mentioned about you know glamping, it's also it's actually extremely hard as any campers know to to find campsites when you're like to make sure you've actually rented a campsite before you go camping. So it's things like that too that they've made so easy. And I think just you know your average Joe camper will really get a lot of enjoyment and use out of that. And they'll make a bunch of money from people using it in that case too.
0: I have a question though about this entire thing, given that we just talked about a $200 yurt. Isn't that effectively already in Airbnb? I mean, camping to me involves dirt. And, you know, I, glamping to me is kind of the lower end of Airbnb. So I'm curious how much crossover there will be in supply between HipCamp and Airbnb. And if that's the case, if there's a lot of that, I think Kate's point about an acquisition makes a lot of sense because Airbnb doesn't want HipCamp to eat into part of its market share, Right that's unacceptable. So if that's the case, This is a pretty obvious buy. I agree.
2: You know, I think if you look at the hospitality space, right, you go to the large hotel chains like Hilton or whatever, they have multiple brands, right? Because they're targeting, they're segmenting their customers into different categories. You have business travelers, you know, family travelers, individual, you know, hostile kind of travelers. I think the same thing you're starting to see here is Airbnb, right? The kind of person who's looking for a $200 yurt in the vineyard is probably not the same customer looking for, you know, an apartment in San Francisco. And actually, that might actually play pretty well into Kate's thesis that this is a potential exit to airbnb is that this could actually be another brand right you're going to start to sell they're going to have their premium kind of executive suite model right you know five thousand a month or whatever um and everything down to your yurt
1: yeah exactly and we've already seen that airbnb is willing to make these acquisitions like i mean they made a huge acquisition of hotel tonight what was that like maybe three four months ago (laughs) um and as they they have this last like six or so months before they go public which you know we're kind of just guessing but it seems like it's going to happen um additional uh, M&A deals might make sense.
2: Absolutely. And the other note that's interesting with HipCamp um, that I think is, is great to, to note is um, it, it's founded by a female founder. Mm-hmm. So uh, Alyssa Ravazio mm-hmm. um, founded it and it, it's great to see that, you know, she's being backed by really great capital. Yeah, definitely. It too.
1: Should we talk about one more round before we close out or?
2: Sure. Uh, One more round. So uh, Gusto, which I always pronounce as Gusto, and it's absolutely wrong. And Mm -hmm. I I know that- we're really good
1: at pronouncing these wrong. We're
2: really good at not only pronouncing Mm -hmm. them wrong, but the the CEO, Joshua Reeves, actually in his signature line, actually has the pronunciation of his company there, which is Mm -hmm. a good sign. That's really not a bad idea. Um, So so Gusto is a um, small, medium, business-targeted payroll solution, um, SaaS Play, uh, raised $200 million this week. um, And um, I believe in their Series D. So they've raised- um, a boatload of money. There, what's interesting here is um, twofold. One is the company just crossed over to a thousand employees, so it's actually like right. grown quite substantially over the last eight nine years. It's a YC company, and um, they're expanding to New York with an R and D office. And so, what's interesting to me is as you sort of look at this talent, is um, you know you're 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 based here in San Francisco in a, in a very classic WeWork office. Um, Gusto actually has a rule that no employees allowed to wear shoes in the office to make it more homely. Um, so, that I don't know. No how,
1: employees are allowed to wear shoes. You must take
2: your shoes off in the office. So, I, I, always, I always do interviews with the company outside of the office because I never take my shoes off.
1: That's, Alex, I know you have an opinion about that.
2: Yeah, that's gross. And I wouldn't go to work.
1: <laughs> I really hate that. I don't even like taking yeah. shoes off at my own apartment.
0: I don't like going outside. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, I really am
2: angry.
0: Okay, so let, let's, be, let's be clear about this. At my house where I live, I will take my shoes off at the door because I've cleaned it and I know that it's clean. If I'm in a public space where people bring their dogs and other sorts of gross things, I will not take off my shoes. That's disgusting. Going back to the top of the show, someone took off their pants on Danny's
2: flight. That's a faux pas. I would add to that list shoes off in the office. Okay, okay, but but first of all, first of all, Alex, it's not a faux pas. There was intentionality around taking the pants off. And there was a multi-discussion like, with two flight attendants about how he, th- this individual had to put his pants back on. How far off were they? Like um, how- le- you know, this is a G-rated show, so I, I don't want to talk about what I saw. <laughs> I saw um, I, Actually, I think if you don't swear, you can say anything you want. Oh, that's good. That's good. Freedom of speech. You know, that's, that's what the press is all about. <laughs> you know, talking about more serious topics about whether you can bring dogs to a, a workplace that doesn't have shoes. Um, you
1: can't. I, oh, I really hope you can't.
2: Well, maybe with two hundred million dollars, they'll have some sort of shoe cleaning thing.
1: Maybe they'll, maybe they'll the give office. slippers to everyone.
2: But they're coming to New York, and I'll tell you that New Yorkers don't take their shoes off. This is going to be a. There's exactly one restaurant I know no. in, in Manhattan that you have to take your shoes off, uh, which is one of my favorite what restaurants. Is it's this? a, this is it's so a vegan uh, Korean restaurant called Hangawi, and you, you walk in <laughs> and uh, you got to take your shoes off. <laughs> So maybe maybe I've learned maybe,
1: so much today.
2: This show is going downhill. So let's go on to yep. let's go to the Vision Fund. Okay, that, yes, that, that, that's that, how we should
1: close <laughs> Vision Fund.
2: Let's go, let's go.
1: Okay, so um, there was a Wall Street Journal report this week that the Vision Fund was preparing an announcement that they had forty billion dollars allotted to their second Vision Fund. So as we all know, the Vision Fund One announced I think now almost three years ago was ultimately a $98 billion fund that invested in a ton of companies like WAG and Brandless and Uber and Didi and so many more. So we're all kind of wondering and have been for a while, will there be a Vision Fund too? And the answer seems to be yes. And Microsoft as well as Goldman Sachs, are uh, potentially the investors in this next fund.
0: Yeah, the Microsoft point is pretty interesting because Microsoft has a historically kind of strange uh, relationship with venture. If you go back in time, they had something called the Bing Fund, and then they kind of morphed that into Microsoft Ventures, and now they have M12, which is a VC firm. But to see them maybe pick up an LP position in this is kind of odd. I didn't see that coming, and, and the, the rift that the journal had was that SoftBank may try to get its portfolio companies in the Vision Fund to switch to Azure. But given that they invest in late-stage companies, they're not going to be able to get people to move from AWS to Azure. So I don't see the connection there. And so I almost wonder if the Microsoft thing's a bit of a trial balloon. But
2: uh, I don't know. Danny, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because Microsoft also did this like hypothetical investment of a billion dollars into OpenAI. And um, you know we were trying to track down whether that's actual like equity capital or whether it's just sort of Azure credits. I, I think the greater lesson here is that Microsoft, like many of the big tech companies, just has a balance sheet that is just Unbelievable, right? There's, there. I think Apple has something like 200 billion dollars of cash and cash equivalents on its balance sheet. And so, where, the, where the heck do you put it? Like, do you want to buy bonds? Do you want to buy like, you know, UK equity? You know, Greek debt? <laughs> 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 I mean, now I want to. I didn't know that was an option. Everyone put you know, their Apple money into Greek, Greek debt. debt. Is like startups. It's either going to go up or it's going to go to zero. Um, and it's probably going to go to zero. Um, but not to make too much fun uh, of Greek debt, but but seriously, I think that this is a way to align the balance sheet where you have serious amounts of money with, you know, a broad set of enterprise valuable kind of um, strategies, right? So it may be about Azure. It's also about learning about what these companies are doing. Some of them could be acquisition targets, right? Microsoft has made some huge acquisitions. They bought LinkedIn, they bought GitHub. Both of those were were 10 billion plus kind of acquisitions. Um, And so I think, you know, ultimately, SoftBank hopefully will sell some of its companies to Microsoft, and that gets paved over easier if your LP is already the person who wants to buy in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what people are wondering, too, about the SoftBank Vision Fund, too, is, is how much foreign investment we would see. I mean, obviously, the reason why the Vision Fund has made headlines time and time again, in part, is because of the... Saudi Arabian money, as well as like the participation from the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund. And I mean, I don't think we know yet whether or not these entities are going to invest in the Vision Fund too, but I know I'll be keeping a close eye on that. I'm sure both you guys will as well.
2: And I think the other interesting thing, uh, Leslie, here oh, yeah. is um, you know the WeWork kind of dynamic here with the uh, IPO in September, right? Uh, the SoftBank Vision Fund is by far the largest investor in WeWork, and I believe it's also the largest position in the first Vision Fund. And so when mm-hmm. it comes to the performance of those shares post kind of IPO, I mean, if it does super well, the Vision Fund is actually going to look really, really smart. Whereas if it kind of crashes right out of the market, loses 50, 60 percent of its value, um, I mean, actually it could be a really tough fundraise. Like that could be the end of the story. So I, I think we're going to actually learn a huge amount in the next couple of weeks um, about where this is going to go.
1: I think there's no way that we work goes public at a $47 billion valuation. I think we'll see a situation just like Uber, which is when it will go public at a lesser valuation. Maybe it'll accumulate value in the months that follow. But like, I will be so surprised if WeWork is able to actually match its current private valuation.
2: Well, okay. We're going to find out in just a couple of weeks. (sighs) Yeah. I have to wait. And this is on recording. So you're going to be held accountable on this show. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovit. And we will see you all right here next week. I'll save my thoughts for the show. But, okay, like, yeah. Yeah, but what happens when the stock market goes down? Like, good luck
1: to them. Yeah, let's talk about that. I like that.
2: I only trade using the Sheriff okay. of Nottingham app. <laughs> That was the worst fucking joke in the history of the show. I like that
1: so much. It's it's like a a
2: simultaneous dad joke, but it requires some context.
1: It like takes a second to sink (laughs) in.